Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob. Coming off the effects of my booster shot, my Omicron booster shot, so I really don't sound really great, but I'm there and I'm here, and I just thought I would let you know that that sound kind of like, but I'm okay. Take two. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob welcoming you to The Adventures of Sam Spade. And this episode, it's almost not quite the finish, but it's the last show in the run of Sam Spade. I have one more or two more shows after to bring to you out of sequence, of course. One of them is a Lux Radio Theater production of what seems to be Sam Spade, and Howard Duff is in it. And he's called Sam, but he's not referred to as Sam Spade. So you, apparently collectors think that this is a Sam Spade episode from the Lux Radio Theater. But I have no way of knowing. I've heard the episode, so I don't think it is, but collectors seem to think it's part of the Sam Spade run with Howard Duff, although it was done after Howard Duff left Sam Spade. I don't know, it's really crazy, I don't know how they can assume that. Anyway, so the Sam Spade episode is from 1951, April 27th, Hail and Farewell, and then after that is The Adventures of Philip Marlowe from September 10th, 1949, The Rustin Hickory Caper, not Rustin, but Rustin. And then Mr. and Mrs. North from 1943, September 22nd, The Contagious Confession. And if you noticed in that episode, it's sponsored by Woodbury Soap, and they had this electronic gimmick that they could attach to the phone, to the microphone, I should say, excuse me, to sound like this, only more hoarse and really kind of alien. And I don't know why... The sponsors thought that that was a cool thing to do to distort the product name with an electronic device. Apparently, they thought it was pretty cool. I, I, I think it's silly, but and, and that's how it translates to me anyway. So it's really weird how they think that that was cool, have that electronic device. I, I could do that. I could probably be right now, hit a button right now, and make it, my voice sound like that, but it's not worth it. It sounds too stupid. Anyway, <laughs> so enjoy all these shows, and I'll see you all back here, God willing, and the creeks don't rise. Oh, oh, by the way, I did want to talk about Sam Spade a little bit more. Um, You know, I talked... Anyway, I was going to talk to you about NBC, but I've already done that, but I'm going to talk to you about how loyal CBS was with Sam Spade. I mean, it was on for the entire run. And, and if I recall correctly, uh, 
Jack Benny and Mary Livingston, when they moved from uh, NBC to CBS, came up came up with a little song, a little ditty, promoting all of the CBS shows on Sunday night that came after Jack Benny. And one of them that they uh, talked about was Howard Duff and, and Sam Spade. So, I mean, CBS promoted the heck out of Sam Spade and all the other shows that showed up on Sunday night, along with their new catch, Jack Benny. CBS and Sam Spade had it going all the way back to 1946 when Howard Duff got out of the army and he got cast in this role of Sam Spade a very cherry role and he did it for about six years and then thought he had enough of it and got off and then um, NBC got a hold of the program and the first thing that they did to try and sabotage it, put an unknown person in, uh, uh, in the role of Sam Spade. And that actor's name was Stephen Dunn from California, not from the East Coast, who was perfect as far as the letter and the spirit of Sam Spade, but he didn't have the vocal quality that Howard Duff had. And But they did keep... Uh, Lorreen Tuttle in as Effie, which was a good move. But it's like they really didn't put a lot of thought into when NBC got Sam Spade to try and find an actor that sounded a little bit more like Howard Duff. Instead, they got this new guy from who was born and raised in California, and Howard Duff clearly wasn't. And he had a kind of Eastern accent. But anyway... And But here's the other thing, too, is that radio collectors, who are the strange lot, to be sure, hated the new guy that replaced Howard Duff. And it wasn't the guy, the new guy's fault. It was just he was struggling. He was trying to get his foot in the door in radio, and he took the job. And yet, Collectors diss that actor for playing Howard Duff. And yet, the scripts hadn't changed. The writers on this show hadn't changed. And the scripts were just as good as when Howard Duff played Sam Spade. So, it's just all kind of weird how collectors can be so judgmental when it comes to something that happened before they were born. That's just my take on it. Anyway, enjoy the show. Hey, everyone. This is OTR Rob. This is going to be the almost, but not quite, but just about sad conclusion to The Adventures of Sam Spade, Private Detective, as aired on NBC. I often thought that from the beginning of when... RCA was working with bringing television to the fore back in the 1930s that they were looking to seek a change in entertainment from radio and transition into television. And I think that NBC is probably one of the early networks that 
really put the kibosh on radio and by gaining certain shows from other networks and then summarily putting them on their network at odd times, at odd days, and pretty much putting the end to certain shows. And Sam Spade, or the inventors of Sam Spade, was one of them. And I think that uh, in the late 1940s, they uh, saw how successful Sam Spade was on other networks, and they wanted it for their own, but they weren't serious about promoting it. They definitely weren't serious about promoting it and carried it at odd times and uh, allowed the local stations to carry it whenever they felt like it, and generally not in prime time. So Sam Spade was one of many shows that NBC killed, and they killed it on purpose. That's what I think. And this Hail and Farewell episode from 1951, April 27th, still two months before the end of the season, and they're killing Sam Spade. That tells you a lot right there. But anyway, enjoy this episode of Sam Spade from 1951, April 27th, the Hail and Farewell caper, and I'll see you all back here after this. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Adventures of Sam Spade, Detective. Sam Spade, Detective Agency. Me, sweetheart. Say. Oh, Sam. Now, take it easy. The papers are on the street. I saw them. So did I. There'll be some red-faced editors ducking behind their green eye shades tomorrow. What do you mean, Sam? You don't plan up the score until the returns are all in, F. This applies to presidential elections, boxing matches, and executions at San Quentin Prison. Sam, you mean Willie? I mean Willie. Batten down the hatches and turn over your foam rubber cushion, Wonder Girl, for even now I'm homeward bound with a stride-by-stride account of a 12-hour marathon, which I shall call for obvious reasons, the hail and farewell caper. Transcribed for NBC, William Spear, radio's outstanding producer-director of mystery and crime drama, brings you the greatest private detective of them all, starring Stephen Dunn in The Adventures of Sam Spade. Robbed. Effie? Sam? Brought in here this minute. Oh, yes, sir. Have I done something? That's what I was about to ask. Have you been sticking your delightful, freckled-covered, upturned little nose into my schnapps bottle? <laughs> well, answer me, girl. Sam, you know I don't do... All right, then who? Well, the nervous little man who was here did open the drawer to find a pencil and paper and, and leave a note. Okay, you're clear. Oh, Sam... What about the little man? A good and leading question, F. Shall we attempt an answer? Oh, I'm at the ready, Sam. Shoot. Date, fill it in. To Justice Edward Benjamin, State Supreme Court from Samuel Spade, license number 137596. Subject, the hail and farewell caper. Dear Justice Benjamin. My relationship with the spindly little man goes clear back to a week ago, Thursday. Possibly even before that. But that was the day I first noticed him. I remember it was Thursday because I was having corned beef and cabbage at Schroeder's. With him, it was a glass of water at the next table. 
He was paying little mind to the menu, having decided to spend the lunch hour staring at me. A couple of times, he put down his glass of water and pushed back his chair as if he were going to come over and talk. But he changed his mind. I put away the corned beef and cabbage and was halfway past the pie when he finally did it. Uh, excuse me, sir. Hello? You, uh, you, sir, are Mr. Spade? I am. The uh, detective, Sam Spade, detective agent? At your service, sir. Now, what can I... I, uh, I, uh, you see, I, uh, do you have a match? I gave him a match and he thanked me and went out. On Friday, I saw him in Ben's grotto over a plate of wrecked soul. We got just about as far, then he returned the match shield. The following week, I saw him four times. Once as I was going into a show, once at the post office, and twice as I was going into my office building. Each was the same. We'd get up to the point where he was about to tell me something, then he'd back down and ask me what time it was, or did I have a horse in the fifth at Golden Gate, or would I lend him a cigarette? Then he'd bustle off as fast as his spindly little legs could carry. And thus matters stood yesterday. Place, my office, time, 1.37 p.m. Sam Spade. Mr. Spade, this, this, this is a gentleman who... who yeah, is... don't tell me I know the voice. Now, what is it this time? I... I'd like to see you, Mr. Spade. I must see you. I know. I'll save us both a trip. The it date is, is April 26th. The time is 1.38 p.m. It, All it trains, really planes, and streetcars are leaving on schedule. Most and for the favor to Golden Gate tomorrow, consult your nearest please, bookie. Please, sir. Please, Mr. Spade. Please, do not jest. This is a matter of life and death. I say, Fine, then. I'll see you tomorrow for lunch, huh? I won't be here, Mr. Spade. Oh, where'll you be? Dead. Dead. Look, look, I'm I, tired of this, I'm Mr. Spindley. Give it to me straight or sign off. Now, what I, is it? you got to listen to me, Mr. Spade. It's, it's most important. It's a life or death. It's a life... Hello? Mr. Spindley? Hello? It almost seemed as if he were in earnest this time, so I didn't hang up. I hustled down the hall to the next office, found another phone, and sweet-talked the supervisor into tracing down Mr. Spinley. It was a pay booth in a drugstore opposite the Park Emergency Hospital. The clerk in the drugstore was just getting over it when I punched in. Spindley had collapsed in the booth and had been hauled across the street to the hospital. On the bed there. Oh, thanks, doctor. Life and death, Mr. Spade. Terrible. You've got to stop it. It's murder. He's been legal muttering murder. like that ever since we brought I him in. Yeah, him. Hop, huh? The legal kind. You see before you an overdose of sleeping tablets. You mean he tried to kill himself? I can't think of an easy way anyone could feed him two full bottles, can you? Pull through? Probably. I gave him a good pumping. Don't let them do it. Don't. Don't. All right. It's All right. Now, murder. Now, Mr. Doe, don't carry on so. But I know who did it. I, I, you must stop him. All right. All right. I, I know who is Take it. Take it easy. I, He's got a lot of strength for a little guy. Mr. Doe, huh? No name. Yeah, nothing to identify him. Funny thing, that. What do you mean? I'd almost guarantee the man's undernourished, hasn't eaten for days, shabby clothes and so on. Yet look at the roll I found in his pocket. Hmm? How much? Almost $800. Well, did you find anything else? Yeah, this. Huh? What do you make of it? Well, front page of the Star Times. It's a galley proof, isn't it? The kind that run off in the linotype room before they start the presses. Yeah. Killer dies tonight. Willie Johnson, hitchhike murderer to enter gas chamber at midnight. Uh, innocent, innocent man. It's, right. it's murder, it's murder. Down you go, Mr. Doe. But, but I know who did it, sir. I know everything. I, uh, everything I uh, know who 
A frame. It's a skillful frame. You mean Willie Johnson? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I know who it was. It was... It was... Hail and farewell, sir. Hail and farewell. Who was it? Come on, Mr. Doe. Wake up. Mr. Doe. Yeah. I was waiting for that. Hit him. Like a ton of bricks. He'll be incommunicado over the next 24 hours or longer. Hail and farewell. A broken down actor. Huh? Only an actor would think more of an exit line than an innocent man's neck. You mean you believe he knows... I don't know what I believe. The guy's been trailing me for ten days, driving himself nuts, tries to knock himself off. It's a cinch he believes in. Hmm. Well, there's no chance of bringing him around before tomorrow. Yes, and Willie Johnson dies tonight. So what happens? So I'm stuck for taxi fare to San Quentin. Believe in him? Believe in Willie Johnson? Yeah, I know you're his lawyer, Mr. Grayson. I'm his lawyer because I volunteered to serve you, Mr. Spade. I've been in the law a long, long time. I've defended a lot of phonies. Sometimes you've got to if you want to eat. They all sing the same song. I was framed. Oh, I know all 89 verses. But Willie... Yeah? Willie's song is different. Because Willie Johnson's an innocent man. Willie was framed. Four appeals... Four appeals, four stays. And we've had our last one. It's folded up now, Spade. I'm going to take the walk with him at midnight. So do something for me, will you? Sure, sir. When... When you walk into a cell... Remember, you're talking to a man who's going to die in less than eight hours. We're trying to... We're trying to build his spirit up so he can go out with... Colors flying, you know? Don't give him a lot of false hopes, Spade. Because... Because there isn't any... I don't quite understand, Mr. Spade, sir. I told my story so many times. I, uh... I'd like to write something about you for the papers, Willie. Oh. Yes, sir. All the newspaper gentlemen been here and gone. Yeah, I know. Could you tell it just once more, Willie? Well, all right, sir. It's more than a year ago, I guess you know that. Yeah. I was broke, you know. Hmm. Things hadn't been going so well, sir. I was down to my last two bits that night. I walked into Sherry Dugan's. That's the bar on the waterfront, huh? Yes, sir. I got to talking with a fella sitting at the bar there. He bought me beer. Who was he? I never did find his name. Ain't seen him since that night. If I could find him, I don't reckon I'd be where I am, sir. Uh. He had a paper with him. Was reading the classified ad section. You know the part about autos, transportation, so on? Yeah. Well, there was an ad there. I'd say we'll pay $500 plus expenses to drive car to Mexico City with a phone number. Uh-huh. And the fella said if he were in my shoes, he'd call up and inquire. So I did. I inquired. I, and I got the job. Well, sir, about an hour later, I met a man with a car at Southern Mason by the gas station there. And he gave me the 500, and I start out for Mexico City. Who was he, Willie? Never found his name, either. We tried, too, Mr. Grayson. Me. Never could find him. I see. Well, it, it was raining that night, sir. I remember. It was raining. And I hadn't gotten more than 50 miles south of town, somewhere around Morgan Hill, it was. When a siren blew off behind me, and the first thing I knew 
Well, they was asking questions about a girl. A girl named Georgia Lyon. Uh-huh. It was her car, it seems, and the, the officer claimed I stole it. They, they made me raise my arms and they, they searched me. And, and there was a knife in my pocket, you see, with, with blood on it. There, and I, I don't know how it got there. And the $500, that had blood on it, too. And, and there was blood on the seat. And, and, and when they opened the turtle back, there she was. This Georgia line, I told you. Uh-huh. All double up there and dead. And they, they said I'd done it for the money in the car. And I, I, I guess I just went crazy, Mr. Spade, with, a, with this all coming at me at once that way. You see, I, I tried to make a break for it, and I got away. And uh, I know I knew what was a terrible wrong thing to do. I know that. Yeah. What about the trial, Will? Well, sir, Mr. Grayson done everything in his power. Mm-hmm. And, and so did I. Mm-hmm. Told the truth as close as I could recollect it. But it didn't make no sense. We never found a man in a bar or the man who drove up in the car. What about the phone number in the ad? Oh, that that turned out to be a fancy dress shop on Powell Street called uh, uh, Mason Francine. Mm-hmm. And the classified ad, sir, that, that was the queerest thing of all. Well, what do you mean? Well, Mr. Grayson went through every newspaper in the country for two weeks either side of the night. And there wasn't any such ad in any of them. Huh? So they said I was lying. They said I was lying. I made it all up I, in my head. And I, now they're going to kill me for it. Yeah. I don't know, Mr. Spade. I've heard it so long now. Maybe I did kill her. Maybe they're right. Maybe they're right. But there was something in the way he said, maybe they're right. I told you they were wrong. I thanked him and told him I had what I wanted for my story and said goodbye. There was no hope in his face, but no despair either. He knew what was coming and he was ready. That's all. I hit the homeward-bound commuters on the wrong side of the Golden Gate Bridge, so it was almost seven when I checked in at Sherry Dugan's bar on the waterfront. A girl was sitting three stools down from me, a class-type dame in a black file suit from Magnum's. And a hat that must have set some good-time Charlie back 50 bucks. Not the kind of a dame you'd expect to be sitting in Sherry Dugan's, least of all as drunk as she was. Well, here you are, Jack. Sixty cents. Thank you. Wait, wait a minute. Huh? This is a one-man operation, isn't it? Oh, yes, why? Well, then you'd be Sherry Dugan, huh? <laughs> no, no, I, I bought the joint from Sherry a few months back. Why? Well, I'm, uh, I'm doing a story for the papers on Willie Johnson. Tell me, was Sherry here on the big night? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Only Woodley Johnson wasn't. You could look it up, what Sherry testified. Where is he now? Oh, South America. And there he'll stay. You know why? Why? Sherry has brains. For a man in his shoes, there's no better place right now than South America. Oh? Tell me more. He needed a rest the worst way Sherry did. After all he'd been through. Tending bar can be difficult at times, right, Tim? Oh, yes, yes, indeed, yes, indeed. Show me a good bartender, and I'll show you a barn diplomat. And more besides. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the sherry, wherever he is. Keep running, sherry, keep running. You know, sherry's like a dog running away from a can tied to his tail. We all are. Who's we? All of us, all of us, the world. Give me another drink, Tim. Oh, now, listen, lady, I don't think I'd better... Don't give me any lip. This is a first-class wake, isn't it? A send-off for Willie, isn't it? Well... Poor! Marilyn, what are you doing here? Uh, 
Well, just in time, George. Hey, sit down. Sit Come down. on, we're going home. Take your time, George. Two of the members present, one more, will have a quorum. Pour him a drink, Tim. You want me to carry you out of here? Might be fun. Where's Daddy? Pacing the floor. Now, come on. You know something, George. You've got a can tied to your tail, too. No use running, George. Oh, you're out of your head. Whatever made you come here? Kind of appropriate, don't you think? Special night tonight. Black dress. You'll fix it. Gonna have us awake. Not here we aren't. Are you coming? Nope. All right. Where, where are we going? Going home. Bye, Timmy. And you, whoever you are. Hey, wait, wait, wait. How about to have a... Hold it, hold it. How much does she owe you? I got three forty-five. Uh, here. Well worth it. Now, tell me, who is she? Oh, it's a model. Some dress shop uptown. Oh? Like the Maison Francine, for instance? Yeah. How'd you know? That's the hunch. What's her name? Oh, Marilyn Hale. Her old man runs the Star Times, you know, the publisher. Yeah. The guy is his partner, George Farewell. You must have heard of the firm Hale and Farewell. I had, but it was a slightly different reading from the one Mr. Spindley gave me at the hospital. I looked at my watch. Willie was four and a half hours from the end of the line when I took off for the press room at the Star Times. Listening to the weekly adventure of radio's most famous detective, Sam Spade. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. There's fun and music for you tomorrow evening with the Dennis Day Show. There'll be songs by Dennis and another typical tangled comedy situation. The kind of hilarious mix-up that could happen only to Dennis Day. And now, back to the hail and farewell caper, tonight's adventure with Sam Spade. Time, 8-11. I got out of the elevator in the basement of the Star Times building on Mission Street and started looking for the press room foreman. Somebody named Joe Fortescue. I finally found his feet sticking out from under a sick linotype, hauled him out, and tried to make him understand what I wanted. Yeah, I know, I know who you mean. I know a little bandy-legged guy. That... Can't hear you. I say, I say, it's a little bandy-legged guy. Yeah, that's the guy. Hello, what about him? Come on. Go ahead, you first. Ah, now, who is he? Oh, Charlie Forrest, he's not... I know, but that's not what I... Been off his rocker for a year. Look, you see that picture on the wall over your head? Yeah. That's Mr. Hale, the Iron Fist. Won't tolerate no inefficiency, you understand? But this screwball, this Charlie Forrest, I personally can him twice, and both times Iron Fist sends him back to him. Yeah. So, so, don't make no never mind to me, brother. Leave him come to work, Stude, all the time. Leave him lay off for two straight weeks like this time. Uh, don't make no never mind. Yeah, yeah, now look, I'm up with you now. How long's Charlie been this way? Oh, a year or so. I know just when it started. When Willie Johnson was hauled in on the hitchhiking killing, right? Oh, you've been talking to Charlie, huh? Yeah. Well, funny thing how that hit him. You'd find him sitting in a corner by himself, mumbling all the time about the guy being innocent. What do you suppose Charlie had to do with that? Oh, I don't know. Got real crazy toward the end, you know. Said he was killing Willie Johnson. And you'd ask him with what? And he'd say a linotype machine and a hunk of newsprint. 
One day he even offered to prove it, you know. How? I don't know. He said he had proof. He said he had the evidence that would save Willie's neck. Hid in his room. Boy, he was the office trolley. Look, I've got to find out where he lives. They don't know upstairs. I don't know. We don't know downstairs, neither. He moved out of his apartment three weeks back, and don't nobody know where he went. Look, he was in this morning. Picked up a galley proof of page one. Uh, That's right. Yeah. I'll tell you who might know where to find him. Oh, come on, come on. About ten o'clock, he leave here. Said he was going to look him up. Somebody, uh, Somebody named Spade. Thanks. Sam Spade. He's a detective. That remains to be seen. A message, Sam? A bandy-legged little guy named Charlie Forrest, F. He must have been in around 10, 10.30 this morning. Dear, I didn't get here till 11. Uh, They're still clearing stuff off the tracks from the MacArthur reception. Yeah, never mind that now. Listen, write this down. Oh, oh, where did I find a piece of paper? Hurry up. Here, here, under the ashtray. Yeah. Go ahead, Sam. Call Jeremy Grayson. He's a lawyer, and he's with Willie Johnson in the death row at Quentin. Tell him to get hold of a justice on the state Supreme Court and hold the line open till I get him. You got that? Yes, sir. Is there anything else? No, I'll get back to you in a little while. Sam, wait a minute. Don't hang up. What's the matter? <gasps> this paper I'm writing on under the ashtray. It's a note. Well, go ahead. Mr. Spade, please contact me at once. Charles W. Forrest, Bellflower Hotel, 338 Stockton Street. <laughs> It took 20 more minutes to cross town and 10 on top of that to convince the clerk at the Bellflower I had a right to the key to Charlie's room, which I had not. I tossed the room from the light fixture to the floorboards, covered everything from the window shades to the bathroom plumbing. Result, one batch of dirty laundry, six soggy cigarettes, and two empty bottles of sleeping pills. I was on my way out when I remembered one more thing. It wasn't an accident like in the movies. It was on purpose. I unscrewed the tops of the iron bedposts. Inside number three, I found it. There was a payphone at the end of the dark hallway. Sam, I warned you about this. We've had four stays. They won't come through with the fifth. I've got a fair hold card, Grayson. Did you get the judge? Yeah, Benjamin, State Supreme Court. What'd he say? What I knew he'd say. No evidence, no stay. Tell him I got evidence. It better be good, Sam. It is. A phony newspaper, a copy of the Star Times for the night of the murder with a special page in the classified section carrying the ad that Willie answered. How does that sound? You've got it now? Yeah. Well, for Pete's sake, hang on to it. I'll get back to the judge. Say, wait a minute, who, uh, who's behind it? It's a long story. I'll tell you when I see you. Hang up. Uh, when you what? Spade. Spade. Hang up or I'll kill you. Spade. That's it. You can turn around now. Well, Iron Fist. We've met. I've seen your picture, Mr. Hale. It flattered me, no doubt. Give it to me. What? The paper, stupid. I haven't read the funnies. All right, Mr. Spade, if you'd rather. Iron Fist knew other games besides publishing. He moved up, I went for the gun, which suddenly wasn't there, and he was giving me a fast demonstration of judo for beginners. First thing you know, I was sprawled on the floor, and he was looking down at me along the barrel of his thirty-eight. <laughs> I could kill you, I suppose, but why? Why? He backed off toward the window, spread out the paper, and crumbled it up. No. You know what you're doing with that match, Hale. Shut up. You're burning Willie Johnson at the stake. I said you're... shut up. He touched the match to the pile of papers, watched them flare suddenly, lighting up the entire hallway. He looked like a medieval devil. I'm sorry about Willie Spade, but it has to be, that's all. It has to be. What did you have to do with Georgia Lyon? Nothing. Nothing at all. And her name wasn't Georgia Lyon, really. It was her stage name. Helen? 
Her real name was Farewell. Your partner's wife? Why, Spade, didn't you read the testimony at the trial? She was leaving George that night. She'd made a noble decision to walk out of his life and leave him free. For your daughter, huh, Marilyn? That's right. And it was such a tragedy Georgia had to run into Willie Johnson the very night she left, wasn't it, Spade? <laughs> wasn't it? He bent over the fire, watched it die down into a pile of ashes. I was looking at something else. A draft from the stairwell behind me had picked up a glowing scrap and set it down at the foot of a sleazy window curtain behind it. <laughs> well, that's it, Spade. The last of Willie Johnson. The last of... I hit him at the knees as the curtain went up in a blinding flash. No judo this time, just an old-fashioned hammerlock. Let me go. Come on, give me that gun. No. I'll break your arm, Hale. I'll break your arm. Well, that's better. Now get up. Get up. Hale, stop. Hale. Stairway. He took off like an eagle, lit on his neck halfway down, and toppled the rest of the way like a loose pack sack of laundry. He was dead when I got to him. Score? With an hour and five minutes to play, no evidence, one dead witness, one unconscious one, one killer, an accomplice at large. There was only one way left to go, and I took it. Floor, please. George Farewell's apartment. That's the penthouse. Yeah, is he home? Oh, I don't know what's the matter up there, sir. I, I think something's wrong, awfully wrong. Mm -hmm. He went up there early this evening with a young lady, and the door to the roof is locked at the eighth floor. That's never happened before. Any other way up? Well, you might try the fire escape if it's urgent. It is. So I climbed the fire escape at the eighth floor and went up onto the roof, or rather into George Farewell's patio. I worked my way through a maze of potted shrubbery around a fish pond with a fountain in the middle. Piano music was coming through a pair of French doors. But before I saw where the music was coming from, I knew it was the radio and not the piano. Because the piano, a 14-foot grand, had George Farewell sprawled across the keyboard with a bullet through his head. I crossed to the set of French doors on the other side of the house. There I saw her, standing up on the three-foot parapet surrounding the roof, looking eight floors down into the street. Don't come any closer. You're not really going to jump, Marilyn. He did it his way. I'm going to do it mine. Don't come any closer. Don't. I won't. So George shot himself, huh? Why not? Can't go through life with a can tied to your tail. No running away from that. No, there isn't. Well, you're going to jump? Give me time. Oh, you want to do it the dramatic way, don't you, Marilyn? Only 35 minutes left until Willie checks out shut over up, at the... Will you shut up! And to make it really ironic, you'll want to take off before he does, right? Shut the up. one person left who can save him. I talked to Willie, Marilyn. He must hate the world. He doesn't hate anybody. Poor jerk. I think he'd feel even sorrier for you, throwing your own life away while you can still save his. You can't run away from this tin can, but you can untie it. You can climb down off that wall and ride over to Quentin with me. You can tell him George Farewell killed his wife, that the three of you and the little linotyper made a pigeon out of Willie. Ah. I held my breath. She swayed, 
looked down into the street, poising herself. Then she turned round and stepped onto the roof again. Let's go. Congratulations. Yeah. Only George Farewell didn't stab his wife that night. I did. with six minutes to spare. The foregoing Justice Benjamin is submitted in support of the stay of execution granted Willie Johnson and will be set forth in detail in Mr. Grayson's petition for a new trial. Period. End of report. Gee, Willie can say What can I say? Well, I have one constructive suggestion. I could say you're the greatest Finest, most wonderful... Yes, but you'd only be repeating yourself, Sharon. The proper line at this moment is, I shall have the report ready for you immediately following the next announcement. Right? Scoot. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Listen to the stars on this Sunday's big show. Jimmy Durante, Ethel Merman, Milton Berle, and Gordon McRae, plus Meredith Wilson and his orchestra. Your MC on the big show, of course, is the glamorous Tallulah. You're invited. Here it is, Sam. Sam? Hmm? Here's the report. Oh, yeah, yeah. What are you writing, Sam? Now, look, how's this? Man of the world, dashing, debonair, cosmopolitan, temporarily at liberty, desires employment. (laughs) Sounds wonderful. Thank you. What does it mean? All right, we'll drop it down a few notches. Private investigator, accomplished raconteur, will tell troubles to listening public. Nice telephone voice. Contact Sam Spade, 1 East 48th Street, New York. 1 East 48th Street? Yeah, my address during the summer months, Cherub. You got it? 1 East 48th Street, mm-hmm. New York City. Oh, maybe a lot of people will write, Sam. I'm sure they will. Think so? There'll always be a Samuel Spade Incorporated. Will there? Look ahead. Smile through the tears, Sam. I am. The day will come soon again when... When the phone will ring and you will say... Sam Spade Detective Agency. Yes, and I will say... (laughs) Me, sweetheart. Buck up, old girl. Stout fella. Stiff upper lip. Good show. Not goodbye, but... Oh, reward, Sam. Hail and farewell. Good night, sweetheart. Tonight's transcribed adventure of Sam Spade was produced, edited, and directed by William Spear. Sam Spade was played by Stephen Dunn, Lorene Tuttle as Effie. Also in the cast were Junius Matthews, Olin Soleil... Wally Mayer, Sidney Miller, Kathy Lewis, Paul Fries, Ed Max, and Lou Merrill. Script for tonight's adventure by Harold Swanton. Musical scoring by Lud Gluskin, conducted by Robert Armbruster. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. The lady tourist was a school teacher out after glamour, and she got it. 
But only after she learned that in Hollywood, the three R's could be reading, done in a dark room, writing, found in a dead man's pocket, and arithmetic that added up to murder times two. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's transcribed story, The Rustin Hickory. It was hot in my apartment, even at ten o'clock at night. The sultry wind blowing through curtains at the far side of the room didn't help a bit kind of night that made me wish I was something else, a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, anything. After a long hot day spent in the downtown courts of law, listening to the petty arguments of a petty larceny case, I was tired of petty people. The paper I had picked up on my way home wasn't helping any. Ten killed in an air crash. Mental cruelty, says local songbird. I made myself another highball, lots of ice, easy with water, and picked up the paper again. It was still more of the same. Cy Nestor killed in office on Sunset Strip. Cy Nestor. <laughs> He'd hit the papers before. Bookie, B-minus picture producer, general racketeer. Somehow I wasn't too surprised he was on the receiving end for a change. My drink was good for ten more pages of equally dull reading, and I was set for the next in line when the phone rang. Mr. Philip Marlowe? It was the first attractive voice I'd heard all day. Mr. Marlowe? And you know... I thought she might be fun. My name is Joan Rustin, and I'm only here in Hollywood from Ferndale, Nebraska, on a vacation, and I wanted to have some fun. You know, see the nightclubs and the uh, stars hey. and that sort of thing. Hey, wait a minute, Joan. I don't want trouble, Mr. Uh, Marlowe. I reached a boy. Uh, I... Hey. Yes? Let's back up a little, huh? Your name is Joan Rustin. You're from Ferndale, Nebraska, which you're right, I've never heard of. Also, you're a school teacher. That much I got. <laughs> but the rest about the sights, the last part, the trouble Oh, but don't you see? They're the one and the same. Oh? I wanted to step out. Nightclubs, movie stars, glamour. But it didn't end up like that because he was shot and then I didn't who know what to shot? do. And his name's Aubrey Nickel. He's the man who took me out to show me the club. Anyhow, after it happened, I ran. Why? Why? The publicity, of course. Mr. Marlowe, I'd lose my job. You see, I'm a school teacher. Yeah, you said that, honey. Now, look, where are you, Joan? The Tulip Room. It's a bar on Sunset and La Cienega Boulevard. You'll come right over, huh? Huh? Yeah, I'll come right over, huh? <laughs> Goodbye, Joan. <laughs> Yeah, but where are you? Over here in this booth. Hurry. Okay, hurry it is. <laughs> Hello. Now tell me why all the secrecy and you... Oh. And what? What are you staring at? You? I expected braids, Joan. Horn rims. Calico, maybe. <laughs> Not ice blue satin drape plunging and, uh... Yes? Uh, yes. <laughs> Start at the top, honey, and slow this time, huh? Well, yesterday I met this man, this Aubrey Nickel I mentioned. Oh, he's really nice, Mr. Marlowe. He's a photographer, has a darling place up on the Sunset, uh... Sunset uh, Strip. Uh, you want that to have your picture taken? Uh-huh. I wanted something, well, something glamorous. That's easy. And look, look, here what I got. Oh, uh, by the way, I ordered a drink for you, a Scotch drink. Here. You like Scotch drinks, don't you? Yeah, I, uh... <laughs> Scotch drinks are my favorite drinks, Joan, thanks. You're welcome. Uh, 
Now, isn't it wonderful? The picture, I mean. I'll say it is. I'd never say school teacher. No, that's the idea. Just like a model in a fashion magazine, isn't it? Aubrey took it from inside his photo shop while I was outside on the street looking in his window. You know, like a smart career girl just strolling along the avenue. Mm-hmm. And see how he faded out the background? That way I'm the, uh, the focal center. Focal center. Isn't it nice? Oh, yes, it is, yeah. But look, Joan, the rest of the story now. The man was shot. You don't want publicity, remember? Oh, yes, yes, of course. Well, we made a date, Mr. Marlowe, for tonight. I was to be at his place, his shop on the strip at eight, which I was. But when I got there... He was gone. Well, he might just as well have been for all the attention he paid to me. Oh? He had something on his mind. Acted as though he didn't even expect me. Why, I had to mention his picture here twice before he got it out of a drawer for me. But then, just like that, he changed. Said if I wanted glamour and nightclub, why not? Oh, by all means, why not? And off we went to Cyrano's, no less, and sat at a table with two men and a woman who was actually Ermgard Fury. Actually who? Ermgard Fury, the starlet. Oh. Don't you read the papers? Oh, golly, her picture's been in every theater section and magazine for the last six months. Of course, she hasn't made a movie yet, but she probably will. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Ermgard Fury, she has red hair, a figure, lots of each, huh? Oh, that's right. Mm. Oh, and so sweet to talk to. Well, believe it or not, when we were in the powder room and she couldn't find her lipstick, she used mine. Now, that's really democratic. (laughs) Look, uh, Joan, there was a shooting. You remember that. Now, you were sitting at a table with three men in this Ermgard Fury? That's right. Uh, Well, go on. What happened next? Well... When Miss Fury and I got back to the table, Mr. Lacey and his friend were gone. And then a minute later, Aubrey excused himself to make a phone call. And then? And then a waiter brought me a note from Aubrey which said I should go back to my hotel and wait there till I heard from him. Then it happened. Hmm. Look, Joan, if I'm going to help you on this, you got to tell the whole coherent story. Well, uh. suddenly there were some shots, maybe from outside. And people were yelling. It was terrible. I was scared to death. And I ran outside. People were crowded around someone. It was Aubrey. He was dead. What'd you do then? I took the first taxi I could get to my hotel, the Beverly Crest. I started for my bungalow, but didn't go inside because because there was a man hanging around. I'd seen him before someplace, and I didn't like his looks and turned away, and he called to me. Oh, he was awful, Mr. Marlowe. Awful looking like a frog, maybe? Sloping shoulders, bulging eyes? Yes, and when... Mr. Marlowe, how do you know what he looked like? Promise not to tell. Promise not to... Oh, Mr. Marlowe, he's here, isn't he? Mm-hmm. Been watching us for quite a while. Oh, holy smokes, and I didn't get away from him. Oh, Mr. Marlowe, I had nothing to do with his shooting. What can I do? I simply can't be mixed up in this terrible business. Oh, please, Mr. Marlowe, I'll pay you anything only get me out of this, please. Uh, we'll talk about that later, Joni. Now, look, when we get up, keep talking and don't look away from me. Uh-huh. Then when we're outside and around the taxi stand there, duck away from me fast and get in close to the building and stay there till the frogman is gone. Uh-huh. And head for your hotel bungalow and wait there till you hear from me. Now, you got that? Well, yes, but I don't understand why he's going to leave us. You will. If our little coup works. Come on. It played easier than I'd expected because like a good shadow, the frogman gave us a small head start, which was all I needed. The second Joan darted away from me, I moved quickly up to the first cabin line, opened and slammed the rear door fast, said goodbye out loud to Joan, who was not in the back seat, then slipped the driver five, winked hard, and practically shouted a very faraway address at him. When he lurched in the curb, I stood there and waved a minute. It was what was still supposed to be Joan. Then, even as I saw the frogman dart across the street, pile into his own car and take off after the cab, I walked slowly back into the bar where I had another scotch drink and did some fast checking on the current location of Aubrey Nichols, which was the Dawson Memorial Hospital. Then I started outside for my car after stopping en route at the booth where Joan and I had been sitting to pick up a pair of gloves and glamour portrait. My new little client had left on the seat. (laughs) 
The school mom had been upset indeed. Dalton Memorial Hospital, Dr. Chambers? Yes, one moment, please. Go ahead. Yes, sir. Oh, I want to know the condition of a patient who was brought in here a little while ago, Mr. Aubrey Nickel. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We're not allowed to give out such information. You'll have to inquire at the superintendent's office. Sir, I Joe, wouldn't I'm... bother, Phil. Well, Detective Lieutenant Matthews, good evening. Good evening. Nickel is dead, Marlowe. We oh. did not get a statement from him. That's too bad. Any idea who did it? No. <clears throat> have you? Uh-uh. I didn't even know him. A client of mine. Yeah, uh, Mr. Smith. That's right. That's remarkable. Yeah, Mr. Smith, he asked me to inquire about his condition. Uh-huh. Well, it happened about an hour ago in an alley behind Cyrano's. Aubrey Nickel was a photographer up on the strip, but pretty much of a phony. A big front boy, strictly. That's all there was to it, huh? Walk down here with me a little. Oh, sure, sure. We figure there may be some connection between this shooting and Cy Nestor's death this afternoon. Nestor also had an office on the strip. What do you figure the tie-in is, Matthew? A man named Ham Lacey. You ever hear of him? Yeah. He was one of Nestor's number one boys in the racket, right? Yeah, something like that. Mm. Of course, officially, Ham Lacey is known as the vice president of Nestor Enterprises Incorporated. Also production manager of that second-rate movie studio Nestor owned. Mm. Well, anyway, Lacey, another man, and Aubrey Nickel were at Cyrano's tonight with a starlet named Ermgard Fury... And another gal we haven't been able to tag yet. Now, tell me... Wait a minute, Lieutenant. When Nestor was killed, did it look like the usual mob tactics? No, no. Nestor was beat up by fists. Not sapped, not cut up with brass knives. Your death was caused by a blow to the temple from a poker that was standing next to a phony fireplace in which he could have hit his head when he fell. Well, probably not Lacey and Associates, huh? Probably not. He's got an alibi. Yeah? Mm. Besides, we already got a fair line on who did it and why. We found a note in Nestor's pocket, signed D. Tobin, which threatened Nestor with a beating if he didn't stay away from the undersigned's wife and send her back home at once. Nestor, you may or may not happen to know, had this Im- Imgard Fury or something under contract to him, saw lots of her. So, again, the two deaths more or less tied together. Yeah, you've already talked to, uh, oh, by the way, her name is Ermgard Fury. I... No, 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 I ain't talked to her. I figured I'd wait till I knew a little more. Also, I didn't figure Nickel would die without saying anything. No. Oh. Well, now it's your turn. We found this negative in the alley near Nickel's body. This is a night shot of the Sunset Strip and nothing more. Means anything to you? No, why should it? Now, look, I told you before, Lieutenant, I never even met Nickel. Yeah, and I listened, didn't I? I noticed. Yeah, but now let's level a bit, huh, Phil? Who your client is and what he or she has to do with this is one thing as long as we're both on the same side. But... Playing dumb when it might count is quite another. Now, one more, Phil, huh? The picture? Still zero, Lieutenant. Uh, Anna Bright. Anything else? Yeah, yeah, just to save you a little time, Phil. Yeah, let's do. Ermgard Fury's address, 441 West Bedford Drive, Beverly Hills. You got a 441 West Bedford Drive. Now, play it close. Be sure to call when you think it's time. And if you're wondering about why all this help from me, try this. What you know and won't tell, plus what I know and will tell, might do the trick. Say goodbye to me, Phil. Goodbye. Yes? Miss Fury, my name's Philip Marlowe. I must talk to you at once. About what? Uh, Your husband. I'm a friend of his, and he asked me to get in touch with you. It's because of what happened this afternoon up on the strip. Oh? Well, what's wrong is... is... Dave, here in town. Yeah, yeah, he is, and he's in trouble. You see, the police are after him. All right, I... hold it, mister. You've said enough. 
Huh? What are you? Cop or a reporter? Oh, now, wait a minute, Miss Fury. I've already told you I'm a friend of Dave. Whose name I... happens to be Douglas. Mr. Douglas Tobin. Keep that in mind when you try this next time. Good night. Uh-uh, not so fast, baby. The mistake was mine, but I still want to talk to you. So do a lot of men. I'll bet. Now beat it before... I'm God. <sighs> Before I forget myself. What's the trouble, Amgar? Oh, no trouble, Hamilton, darling. This gentleman was just leaving. He had the wrong address. He, um, he made a mistake, didn't you, Mr. Marlowe? Yes. Yes, a blunder. A thousand apologies and, uh, good night, Mrs. Tobin. What it was worth, it worked. At the mention of the name Tobin, Ham Lacey spun around like he was built on a pivot, and his eyes that were narrow slits with all the come-hither look of a cobra has never left me. As I slowly walked away from him and passed the yellow convertible he'd just driven up in. License number 6969X, California. And on out to the street. All of which only meant that Lieutenant Matthews was probably right about there being some connection between Cy Nestor's murder and the death of Aubrey Nichol. When I opened the door of my car and started to climb in under the wheel, the voice in the night helped not at all. If you don't do as I say, I'll kill you. Okay, okay. Knock it out. Take it easy. All right. Now close the door and turn around. You're back to me. Now look, if this is a stick-up, Busty, you can save us both a lot of time. Shut up. I'm not a hold-up man. Now move over there, close to those trees. Go on. I want to ask you a question. All right, that's far enough. Now, what have you got to do with Helen? Helen who? Helen Tope. Ermgard Fury, that's what she's known as now. What have you got to do with her? Tell me. Very little, Mr. Tobin. Tobin? Do you know who I am? And so do the police. So why don't you call it quits while you're still in one piece? Oh, no, 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 not quits. That's what you want, what all of you want. Me arrested and out of the way in jail and maybe out of the way for good. No, no. So that won't be. Helen's mine and you're not going to harm her. Careful, Tobin, you're getting excited. Yes, excited, excited enough for this. Go! just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, a thrill a minute, high-tension suspense from the word go. Dramatic excitement that builds and builds until it explodes in a smashing climax. That's Inner Sanctum, the great mystery show that's another of CBS's top-notch Monday night programs. You'll find Inner Sanctum one of the most entertaining spots in your Monday night listening schedule. And remember, Lux Radio Theater is back for its 15th year of great dramatic presentations. Inner Sanctum and Lux Radio Theater, every Monday night, over most of the same CBS stations. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe, and tonight's story, The Rustin Hickory. When the whirling pinwheels of light slowed down to being street lamps again... Douglas Tobin had pounded shoe leather on enough sidewalk to be safely out of sight. But it took a full minute of rubbing the bruise where his pistol had glanced off my head before I, I finally remembered that it was a good time to call Joan. I looked back at Ermgard Fury's house first and saw the light still on, the cream-colored convertible still parked in front and all apparently quiet inside. So I limped as far as the phone booth on the corner. I warned my client that the trick we pulled on the frog wouldn't hold up forever. But instead, I found out just how far this side of forever it had collapsed. Yeah, hello. Hello. Hey, what number is this? Well, the Shamus. You got the right number, Shamus. What are you doing there? Where's Joan Rustin? Oh, the babe's here, but she ain't in much of a mood to talk. 
incidentally, thanks for giving me this free time, Dippy. What are you talking about? That fast shuffle you tossed me, Dippy. That now you see her, now you don't gag with the taxi. <laughs> for an old shell game operator like me, that one was as tough to see through as a glass bottom boat. All right, all right. You get your diploma in the morning. But listen, you, if anything happens to Miss Rust, now break it. Skip it, skip it, skip it, Dippy. You're wasting your breath. It's already happened. I'll see you around. So long. <laughs> inside out, too, didn't he? What was he after, Joni? Oh, I don't know. He just told me to quit stalling and hand it over. I didn't know what he meant, so he shoved me. Then he pulled out all the books there and tore up the rugs. He was looking for something small and flat like a... Wait a minute, wait a minute, sure. The cops found a negative near Aubrey Nickel tonight, but it was worthless. There must have been another one, an important one. And Lacey and Froggy, who no doubt is Helm Bay, must think you've got it. Me? Well, that's impossible. All I had was my picture, and, well, I don't even have that now. No, but I do. Out in my car, and it gives me a great idea. Come on. Well, where, Marlowe? I don't get it. What's my photograph got to do with this? Maybe plenty. You see, when Aubrey printed that picture of you, he faded out the background almost completely. You remember? Uh-huh. That's a stunt in fashion photography to make a subject stand out. But in this case, Joan, I figure it was played strictly in reverse. Well, how do you mean? That Aubrey took you to Cyrano's tonight on business. Big business. And you were holding the merchandise for him all the way. Oh. Here. Let's take a look. Oh, Marlo, my pretty picture frame. Better this than your pretty head later, sweetheart, believe me. Uh-huh, yeah, here it is. Look, see? A negative the size of a postage stamp. But I'll bet old flashbulbs the $10 bills this baby's really loaded. Ah, uh, my, Marlo, hmm? I'll bet that baby's loaded, too. What are you talking about? The gun in that man's hand there behind you. Oh, fine. Wait, wait. Easy, Marlo. I'm, I'm not looking for any more trouble. I just want to be sure that you'll help me first. You're a private detective. I, I searched you before, so I know. I'm in a jam. It's worse than I figured. The cops are after me for murder. No kidding. I can't understand it, Tobin. All you got is a motive deep enough to swim in, and you've been dropping clues like Hansel and Gretel dropped pebbles. All right, all right, but I didn't do it. Well, I beat up Sy Nestor, sure, but well, he was going with Helen. My Helen. I hated everything and everybody in this phony town because they took her away from me. Even changed her name for her. Ermgard Fury. But I didn't kill Nestor. I, I swear I didn't. You've got to help me, Marlowe. With that thirty-eight in your fist, are you asking or telling? Oh, I'm asking, brother. Here, here. Take it. Take the gun. I'm in a fix and I know it. Okay, hothead. I'm already in Dutch for hiding Matthew's key witness here. Think how I'll look keeping his chief suspect under wraps, too. Yet. Oh, maybe I'm a sucker, but I believe you. All right, where do you hang your hat? The country cottage is number seven. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of a motel court down on Melrose. Number seven. Now go there and stay out of sight. And I mean stay out of sight. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, thanks, Marlowe. Say, uh, I'm sorry I batted you down tonight. That makes a lot of difference to the lump on my head. Go on, Tobin, beat it. Okay, okay. I'll keep in touch with you. Uh, where are we going, Marlowe? Call a friend of mine. We need a big enlargement of a small negative. <laughs>
Chronicle. Photo Lab, Sherman speaking. Hiya, Sherman. This is Phil Marlowe. No kidding. Gee, how's business, Phil? Long, long, long time no see. Yeah, I know. Now, look, are you busy? I got a job that's right down your alley, Sherman. It's important. What is it, Marlowe? Well, it's a 35-millimeter negative. I want it blown up to about half as big as a house. Okay, bring it in. I can't. I, I, I've got to check a couple of other things at the same time. Now, look, Sherman, can you meet me at the Aubrey Nichols studio on the strip in about ten minutes, back uh-huh. door? Wait a minute, back door? Yeah. How come the, how come the back door, Phil? So we can kick it in without attracting too much attention. <laughs> Sherman, I'll see you in ten minutes. I piled Joan into the car, drove down the strip, and once past Nichols' studio, which was enough. Joan had posed for a picture in front of the place and directly across the street, behind her, just as I knew it had to be was the neat plastic sign reading Sign Nestor Enterprises on the diminutive but glossy imitation Swiss chalet where Nestor's body had been found. We turned double back through the alley and found Sherman bobbing up and down like a nervous gopher. Five minutes of not-so-subtle persuasion got us past the lock and inside Aubrey's studio where something else checked. The walls were practically papered with pictures of Ermgard Fury, taken from every conceivable angle, including some that were not. Things were beginning to make a lot of sense. Marlowe, is this all right? Uh, coming in here, I mean, it's sort of uninvited and all. Breaking and entering, lady. You can get five years for it. I sure hope you know what you're doing. Yeah, Joe. this must be the dark room. Yeah. Now, here's the negative, Shermie. Do your stuff. Well, what do you really expect to find on the film, Marlowe? A murderer, baby. It's got to go one of two ways. Douglas Tobin for jealousy or Ham Lacey for ambition. Aubrey Nickel caught one of the two in the background when he took your picture. And he was familiar enough with all parties concerned over there to think he could put the screws on somebody. How's it coming, Sherman? He can get out in a minute. Mm-hmm. Fifteen by twenty, okay? Yeah, it's good. If there isn't a man in the background, I'll eat it. You better get the salt and pepper, pal, because it's nothing but a car. See? It can't be. It... Oh, brother, that's more than a car, Sherman. It's a yellow convertible that belongs to Ham Lacey. Look, you can even see the license, 6969X. 696... Oh, now how do you suppose... What, what's the matter, Marlowe? I just thought of something. Without this picture, both Tobin and Lacey are suspects. But with it, we have proof Lacey is implicated. That means Lacey thinks he has Tobin sitting in the perfect frame, right where he wants him. Oh, Marlowe, listen. Now, look, you two get out of here. Go back to the paper. I've got to get to Tobin fast and let him know. Oh, listen, look, I baby, have... you're no doubt terrific in the third grade. But some things they don't even teach in college are going to pop any minute, so I'll take it from here, huh? Stick with Shermie, honey. I'll call you. Oh, but Marlowe, wait. Made it from the strip down to Melrose and then east of the cluster of dusty lean-tools with bath known as country cottages in something under ten minutes. Walked down the street and cut back through the alley on foot. I got to the door of cottage number seven with about thirty seconds to spare. Now, no, no. wait a minute, mister. You got me wrong. Oh, no, I haven't, pal. You can tell me you didn't knock off sign Esther and I'll believe you. But nobody else will. I've got you right where I want you. Now, wait a minute. Because of your note found in Nestor's pocket. You're the jilted boyfriend. The hick from back home who came to Hollywood with murder in your heart and knocked off the guy who stole your wife. Now, look, Yeah, you're... and then you went after the cheap photographer who gave her her star. Oh, yeah. And after that, you knew you couldn't escape, so you blew your brains yeah, out. And by the time I leave here, that's the way it's going to look. Not tonight, Ham. Yeah, stand still, Lacey. Toss the gun over on the bed. Go on. That's better. So you figured Aubrey was lying about having a picture that pegged you as Sinester's killer, didn't you? You figured Aubrey saw something but had no proof, so you shot him. But you were wrong, Ham. He had all the proof we need. Oh, my God, look out! 
Shut up. Who's out there? Joan. Joan, are you all right? I hit her. She's the one who killed Sinester. I tried to tell you that. I followed you here to tell you, but instead I saw her with a gun pointed at you. I I grabbed the first thing I saw, this broken rake handle, and I hit her with it. I hit her awfully hard, Phil. But she isn't moving. You don't think she's... Dead? No. (laughs) She's probably thinking over the big lesson you just taught her with that stick there. (laughs) What? Oh, what's the matter? Hey, Teach. You know what that rake handle's made of? What? It's hickory, isn't it? Yeah. What else could it possibly be but a hickory stick? All right, Marlowe. All right. Nobody can hear us. Now, what is it? Well, it's that Miss Rustin here is a school teacher, Matthews, and it's imperative that we keep her name out of this. Oh, well, we can arrange that. Oh, good. You know, Matthews, it's funny how one step leads to another. Yeah? Ham Lacey never would have gone so far as to kill Nestor on his own. But when he learned that Ermgard had done it, he saw an opportunity to turn the whole situation to his advantage. He and the girl agreed to frame Tobin and then go along as a team. You know, of course, that that's just your theory. Just a minute. Now, what do you mean? sit down over there and be quiet for a change while uh, Miss Rustin and I wind this up. Matthews, listen. Now, quiet, I... please. Pulling rank, huh? Phil. Now, <clears throat> Miss Rustin. In solving this case, Just you, a minute, uh, she didn't solve the case. I... Miss Rustin, if you hadn't solved it, and right when you did, you'd be talking to this guy exclusively via Ouija board from now on. Let's face oh, it. Oh, what a corny pitch. Now, tell me, Miss Rustin, uh, how did you peg Ermgard Fury? Well, when we got the picture of the yellow convertible, I remembered that I'd gone to the powder room at Cyrano's with Miss Fury to freshen our makeup. But she couldn't find her lipstick. She emptied her purse looking for it. She finally had to borrow mine, you know. Oh, how democratic. I said that. So now you own it? Now, tell me, Miss Rustin, how do you figure the lipstick figures? Oh, it wasn't a lipstick. I happened to notice among the things from a purse a, a keychain a chain with car keys on it and an identification tag in the form of a little license plate. Oh, and the numbers were... 6969X. That's right. And since Ham Lacey had an alibi and those keys were in Miss Fury's bag, you figured it was her who'd been driving. It was she who'd been driving, yes. Isn't this revolting? Yeah, she, yeah. She wanted to kill Nestor because he wouldn't turn loose of her so she could claw her way on up to the bitter top. And when she found him unconscious, it was easy. How literary. Uh, well, that's that, I guess. Thank you very much, Miss Rustin. I I hope your stay in our town has been... <laughs> was... Oh, what's the matter? Tony, baby, don't cry. Uh, I just thought of the most dreadful thing. I've had a wonderful time. I went to Cyrano's. I, I hit a movie star on the head and I helped solve a murder. But I'll never, ever be able to say one single word about it to anybody in Ferndale, Nebraska. Darn it all. It took a few minutes to put on a new touch of mascara and get the pink off her nose. But she was smiling again when we said goodnight to Matthews and stood on the steps at headquarters and looked at the glittering lights of Hollywood. There was still plenty of time for supper and even a dance or two, and she wanted to go. But suddenly, from somewhere, there was a smell of autumn in the air, of dry leaves on the ground and ripe red apples for the teacher. <laughs> she shook her head wistfully and spoke of an appointment she had bright and early next Monday morning. It's a very important appointment, Phil. So, I took her to a hotel and said goodbye. All the way home, for some reason, I kept wondering, whatever happened to Skinny McDonald? The only kid in school who could shoot a better spitball than Marlowe. <laughs> Has it really been that long ago?
adventures of Philip Marlowe star Gerald Moore and are transcribed and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Meldon L.A., Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... There was a tapestry found under a tomb. They were all after it. The worried importer, the man with half a face, the Englishman in an L.A. slum, and the lady wearing a green veil. But before it was over, none of them had it, and two of the four were dead. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Adventures of Mr. and Mrs. North, starring Alice Frost and Joseph Curtin, and brought to you by... Woodbury, Woodbury, Woodbury. The skin you love to touch. Jerry and Pamela North often drive Bill Wygand to the verge of insanity. However, for all their bewildering antics, they often help him, too. The times even go so far as to ask them for advice. Tonight is such a time, because he's faced with a dizzy situation. Now, as Bill seats himself in the North's living room, Jerry says to him... All right, Bill, now what's this great problem that's puzzling you? It's a case that I'm working on. I know. Somebody crept to the window and shot him in the middle of his dinner. What? Yes, I read about it in the paper. He was dining alone. Who was? Uh, Walter Middleton, of course, dear. Mrs. Middleton's been dead for years, and the son and daughter were out, so he was alone. The butler heard the shot and ran into the dining room, but Mr. Middleton was already dead. It's been on all the front pages. Oh, I only read the funnies. He was rich as anything, so there's the motive. Cigarette, Bill? Uh, no, no, thanks. The son and daughter are the most obvious suspects, so that lets them out. How about some candy, Bill? No, not just now. Why does it let them out? That's too obvious. Fruit? No, thanks. Nuts? Yeah, yeah I'm beginning to think so. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, is this Middleton case what you wanted to ask us about? Yeah, yeah, it has a screwy angle. I thought it would be just up the north alley. You see, we have two confessions. You mean two people have confessed to the same murder? That's right, and each claims he worked alone. Well, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, that's what I said. And since sense doesn't work in this case, I thought intuition might. How about it, Pam? Why, oh, have to have something to go on. Uh, who are these people who confessed, Bill? Not the son and daughter? No, no. They're a couple of friends of the Middletons. Larry Chapman and George Warwick. Oh, can I meet them? Sure. We're holding them at headquarters. Well, let's go. All right. I wonder what's in back of it, Jerry. I know. They heard confessions good for the soul. The dining room window was open, so I just pointed the gun through it and fired. That's impossible, Larry. Why? Because I did. Here we go again. Look, Lieutenant, doesn't priority count around here? I confessed first. But you're lying. Uh, may I ask a question? Go right to it, then. Why did you gentlemen kill Mr. Middleton? 
Well, well I, it's just I, that it's I... like this. Well, that is... What I was going I, to right, say hold is hold that... It, hold it, hold it. Now, you, Warwick, why did you shoot Middleton? Well, sir, I... I, uh... I owed him some money and I couldn't pay him, so I killed him. You took the words right out of my mouth. You mean I put them in your mouth? You never even thought of it. I don't care what you say. I don't care what anyone says. I killed Walter Middleton. I hope to die if I didn't. It's the other way around, George. Uh, this isn't getting us anywhere. Well, why don't we toss a coin? Winner gets the electric chair. Wait a minute, Jerry. Uh, now, look. If either of you shot Mr. Middleton, you had to have a gun. All right. Tell us where the gun is, and we'll see if it matches the bullet. I threw the gun away. So did I. I, I mean, that's what I did. I demand you hold me for murder. You ought to hold him for plagiarism instead. Where did you throw away the gun? Who, me? Either of you, both of you. I don't remember. I wrapped the gun in some old newspaper and threw it in some bushes. What bushes? Where? That's what I don't remember. Well, Pam, you're doing fine. Have any hunches yet? I have a hunch. They're both lying. <laughs> That's no hunch. It's a logical conclusion based on observation of the facts. You must believe me. I tell you, I killed Walter Middleton. With your little hatchet. Yeah, we know. Now, look. Don't either of you fellas want to change your stories? No. I killed Walter Middleton. He didn't. I did. Okay, okay. Here comes the policeman. Oh, yes, he has David Middleton with him. Hello, Lieutenant Wagon. Hello. Oh, hello, Mr. and Mrs. Noah. Hello. hello. Lieutenant, I don't know how you're going to like this. Maybe it's good and maybe it ain't. All right, what's up? Well, you sent me to question young Middleton here and check up on his whereabouts on the night of the murder, so I did. Yes. Well, what do you, what do you think he tells me? He says he killed his father. Oh, that's swell. He, he what? Yeah. He wants to confess. Bill? It looks like you've hit the jackpot. Well, I took your advice, Pam, and released our three uh, murderers. But what if it turns out that one of them's telling the truth? Yeah, we can always pick them up again. We certainly have nothing on either one of them as yet. Besides, if one of them is guilty, this is a better way to trap him. Give him enough rope. But, darling, you know what some people do with rope. What? Skip. Oh, We'll have to work fast before he has a chance. Do you have any plans? I'd like to talk to Helen Middleton. Maybe she can tell us something. Okay. But if she tells us that she's the one who killed her father, there'll be a second murder. And I'll commit it. After all, Larry and George are both very dear friends of mine, and David is my brother. You can't expect me to say anything against them. But if one of them killed your father... Oh, none of them did. I'm sure. Why? Well, I, I just know it. Well, then, perhaps you can tell us something to help clear them. They're all under suspicion. But I don't know what to say. I've told the police all I know, and, and I've tried to answer your questions. But, unfortunately, it hasn't helped us much. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't think of any reason why they should all confess? No. All right. Well, we won't keep you any longer, Miss Middleton. Thank you. I hope you'll pardon me if I don't show you out, but I'm so terribly tired and I don't want to go downstairs again. Oh, that's quite all right. Goodbye. 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 Well, Pam, what do you think? You forget, Jerry. I'm not supposed to think. I'm supposed to feel. You know, intuition. <laughs> well, then, what do you feel? Bewildered. I don't understand. Oh! I'm sorry, madam. I didn't mean to alarm you. You ought to give more warning when you pop out of nowhere. Not nowhere, madam. I was concealed in this archway. Eavesdropping on our conversation with Miss Middleton, huh? If you wish to call it that, 
I call it detecting. Are you a detective? Unofficially, like yourselves. Officially, I'm the Middleton's butler. Oh. Oh, you're the one who discovered the body. Yes, madam. Perhaps you can tell us something. I can tell you a great deal. I'm a profound student of crime. Oh, fascinating subject. Yes. I'll tell you this. You're on the right track. It's not suicide. It's murder. Well, of course it is. Nobody suggested it wasn't. After all, there was no gun near the body. How do you know? Well, I... How do you know I didn't find a gun and hide it to make it look like murder? But there's no earthly reason why you should. Uh Uh-uh. Jumping to conclusions. First rule of a good detective. Never jump to conclusions. But you just said yourself that it was murder. True. As a matter of fact, there was no gun. But you shouldn't take my word for it. Why, Why are you looking at me like that? Ah, perhaps you think I killed Mr. Middleton. Good. Very good. Uh, Never overlook anything. First rule of a good detective. I thought you just said that the first rule was never... Yes, very good. However, you're wrong. I couldn't have done it. Why? The butler never does it. Not anymore. That went out with the bustle. But I'll give you a clue if you want it. What? In the back of the house. A little bungalow. Young David Middleton's studio... What about it? No one is allowed in it but the young master himself. The windows are all blacked out. My wife does the cleaning here in the main house, but even she's not allowed in there. Nobody is. Doesn't that strike you as significant? Certainly does. What mysteries does that studio contain? One time I tried to find out, but young David caught me. He was very angry. Haven't you any idea what he keeps there? No, but I'm sure it must be important. If you want the key to the mystery... Find out the secret of the studio. Okay, thanks for telling us. Come on, Pam. All right. Uh, goodbye, Mr. Uh, uh, Butler. Goodbye. Well, Jerry, let's go and see if we can get in the studio. Oh, don't be silly, Pam. That butler's slap-happy. But there might be something to that story of the studio. Nonsense. But suppose there is, Jerry. We shouldn't overlook anything. First rule of a good detective. I mean it. Well, we'll tell Bill if he wants to investigate, he can. I think we ought to. But, Pam... We're right here. I don't think we should. Oh, Jerry, please. No. Please. No. Clump of trees. Come on, Jerry. Careful, nobody sees us. You know, if young Middleton catches us at this, he'd be within his legal rights if he shot us. Oh, I can't see that it would hurt any more than if it were illegal. I mean, if you were shot, you wouldn't care, would you, whether it was legal or not, especially if you were dead. Oh, let's not let him catch us, huh? <laughs> You're right. Let's not. Let. Be careful. This moonlight's pretty bright. Stick close to the bushes. All right. I don't know why I let you talk me into things like this. Because you're sweet. I think it's your baby blue eyes. They look so sad when you can't have your way. Like a calf's. Well, here we are. Calf's eyes are brown. Somehow that seems irrelevant. Now that we're here, what do we do? Let's see if we can find some way to get in. Golly, it seems kind of spooky, doesn't it? It's all dark. Yeah. What's the matter? Oh, wait a minute. I thought I heard something. I guess I was wrong. Well, now, what do you want to do? I think I'll just try the door. Ah! Oh, 
Jerry! <laughs> Jerry, how can you laugh? I've been shot. You're all wet. I'm not. I've been shot. Oh. Oh, I, I am, aren't I? I thought it was blood. No, darling. You just walked into a trap. A bucket of water fell on your head. I'm soaked to the skin. What's going on here? Oh, oh. hello, Middleton. My wife decided to take a shower. Oh, I'm sorry, Mrs. North. I hope you're all right. I guess so. Only I'm cold. Well, come on back to the house and you can warm up. I'm sorry about this, but I don't like people to go near my studio. Yeah, so we found out. You know, that's quite an effective booby trap you have there, young fellow. Isn't it, Pam? Uh, uh, I beg your pardon? Uh, oh, shoot! <laughs> Jerry, stop laughing and come to bed. <laughs> when I think of the way you looked. Like a drowned cat. <laughs> Before I was a cat. Well, you will go snooping into other people's business. Well, Bill asked us to help him. <laughs> I'm afraid you weren't much help. I guess not. You know, Jerry, in spite of it all, I like that David Middleton. Yeah, he seems to be a nice kid. But I would like to know what he's got in that studio. Maybe he's hoarding sugar. Oh, now what? I'll answer it, dear. Hello. Yes? This is George Warwick. Oh, yes. I've been trying to get hold of Lieutenant Wigand. Do you know where he is? No, but I think I can find him for you. Good. If you and he come out to my house right away, I'll show you something very important. What is it? I've just discovered a very important clue. Now I know who killed Mr. Middleton. Well, I thought you said you killed him. I'll explain everything. Uh, how soon can you get here? Uh, I don't know. As soon as I find Bill. All right. I'll be waiting. Goodbye. Goodbye. Who is it, Jerry? George Warwick. You better put your clothes on again, darling. One of our murderers has something to tell us. And this time, it's not a confession. Well, this is it. Wonder what he wants to show us. Well, it, it better be good. I don't like coming out in the middle of the night for nothing. I doubt that this will be as good as he promised. Somehow, I don't trust Wait that... a minute, Bill. What is it, Pat? I think there's somebody standing by the corner of the house. Yeah, you're right. Oh, boy, he's shooting at us. Stop. Hey! intermission for a message of special interest to the ladies. If you are not a user of Woodbury cold cream, I think I know why. It isn't because you believe your complexion is already flawless. Doubt if any girl has such a perfect skin she doesn't want to make it lovelier. No, the reason probably is you haven't yet been convinced that Woodbury cold cream can make a real difference in your complexion. But that just proves you haven't yet tried Woodbury cold cream. For using it once, will show you how extra effective it is. You see, Woodbury cold cream isn't just another cold cream at all. It's a complete beauty cream. 
It actually does everything for your skin. Why not take three minutes tonight to see all it can do? Throw the silky cream over your face and throat. It leaves your skin sparkling clean, glowing. Now pat on more. And this time, let a trace remain on your skin overnight. Tomorrow, well, you may scarcely believe your eyes, your skin will have such a radiant, new, smooth look. Now that's the famous Woodbury Beauty Nightcap. Do it every night. But don't forget, Woodbury Cold Cream is as grand for daytime beautifying. It leaves your skin looking lovelier. Helps your makeup have that professional finish you've envied. Woodbury Cold Cream gives such remarkable results because of four specialing, softening, smoothing ingredients. And because of another exclusive ingredient working constantly to purify the cream in the jar in case blemish-causing germs should get in. Try this amazing, complete beauty cream. Get Woodbury Cold Cream tonight. And now back to Mr. and Mrs. North. The Norths and Wygand were approaching George Warwick's house when someone began shooting at them. Golly, is he shooting at us? Stop, hey! Jerry! There he goes. He's running in the back of the house. You got your gun, Jerry? Yeah. Good. Go around the other side. I'll go this Okay. See anything, Jerry? Pam, you shouldn't have followed me. Well, I wasn't going to stay back there alone. Well, all right. There's someone by the back door. Yeah, back, Pam. Who's there? Hello, that's you, Jerry. Bill, yeah. See anyone, Jerry? No. No, neither did I. What do we do now? Well, I guess we'd better go the other... Help! What's that? Someone's calling for help. Help! Help! It's coming from inside the house. Come on. Here's the door. It's locked. Have to break the glass. Then I can reach in, turn the knob. Look out. Okay. There we are. The call's coming from upstairs. Right, let's go. I can't see anything. No, wait, I'm feeling for the light switch. Oh, here it is. Oh, that's better. Now, come on. Hello, where are you? In here. Sounded like that room there. Right. Hello in there. The door's locked. Break it in. Okay, I'll shoot off the lock. Stand back, Jerry. There we are. Hey, where are you? Over here, behind the bed. What? Oh, it's Warwick. His hands and feet tied. What happened, fella? Larry knocked me down. Tied my hands and feet and ran out. Larry Chapman, eh? Yes. He wore a mask, but I recognized him anyway. He must be the one who shot at us. Probably. I heard the shots. I wondered what was happening. Can you roll over a little so I can get to this other nut? Yeah. That's it. I'll have you loose in a second. What did Chapman want, Warwick? Well, he must have been snooping around and heard me phone you. He's probably stolen the clue. What clue? The gun that killed Walter Middleton. You mean you found the gun? That's right. Well, there you are, all untied. Thanks. Now, what about this gun? I had it locked in my desk downstairs. Perhaps he didn't find it. Come on, we'll see. Okay. You see, on the night of the murder, I saw Larry throw a package wrapped in newspaper and some bushes. I didn't think anything of it until today, when he mentioned wrapping the pistol in newspaper and throwing it in the bushes. And you went back to the same spot tonight and the gun was still there? Yes. I went back as soon as you released me. Then I went to see Helen. Why? I had to be sure she wasn't involved. As soon as I found out she had a perfect alibi, I phoned the Norths. Oh, then you confessed before just to shield Miss Middleton. That's right, Mrs. North. But it wasn't necessary. Chapman had already confessed. I know, but he was just making a play for her benefit. He's cut in enough already. Until he came along, I thought my chances with her were pretty good. Now I'm not so sure. Well, here we are. Just a second, I'll open the desk. Ah, 
It's still here. Yeah, so it is. Let me see it. Here. Here. Well, apparently that isn't what Chapman was after then. Maybe he just wanted a chance to shoot us. But why would he want to kill us, Jerry? I don't know. Well, I can't explain it. All I know is that he knocked me down, tied me up, and then I heard him run out the door. And the next thing I knew, there was shooting. Say, wait a minute. Let's see that. What, the gun? No, the paper it's wrapped in. Hmm. What is it, Jerry? Warwick. You say you saw Chapman throw this package in the bushes on the night of the murder. That's right. And that's very strange. Why? Well, the murder took place a couple of days ago. But this newspaper the gun's wrapped in is today's paper. What? Why, I, I, I don't understand. I think I'm beginning to. Well, there's some mistake. I'll say there is, and you've made it. Oh, no. You can't think that I... Oh, the... can't we, though? How about that other story of yours? Which story? About Chapman attacking you and tying you up. It's true. He did. Oh, he did, huh? And then he ran out the door. That's right. How do you explain the fact that when we reached the door to your room, it was locked from the inside? I... I, I don't know. According to your story, you couldn't have locked it because you were tied up. Chapman went out through it. Well, I... I it must have... Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Jerry, look out. He's grabbing the Stop gun. Stop him, Bill. No, you don't. I've got the gun now. Stand back, all of you. That's it. Don't now, look here, Wallace. You don't can't move. get away. I'm getting out of here. He's getting away. Yes, darling. I'm afraid he is. And you're sure you haven't any idea where he might go to hide out, Miss Middleton? No, I haven't. All right, thank you. We'll run along. Now, I'm sorry we had to disturb you in the middle of the night like this. Well, that's all right. Good night. Good night. Well, no luck here. We'll have to try something else. You know, Bill, I can't help wondering. About what? If he really was guilty, why did he confess? Oh, that was clever. By seeming to protect Miss Middleton, he threw suspicion off himself. Of course, that's it. Bill, Jerry, I, I just thought of something. You think you know where he is? I think I know where... Wait a minute. What is it? Look, there's a light under the door in David Middleton's studio. Come on. Why? You don't think Warwick's there, do you? No, but I've just got to find out what's in there. <laughs> you and your curiosity, you know what it got you before. Oh, I'll watch out, Jerry. I know what to look for this time. Pam, we've got a murderer to track down. Oh, you men. Don't you have any curiosity? Besides, it won't take any time. Come on. All right, let's go, Bill. There'll be no living with her until she's satisfied. Well, all right. Ah, oh, you're darlings, both of you. Where's Saps? Yeah, I don't know why I agreed. I don't have to live with her. Shh, Bill. We're getting close. Too bad you forgot your bathing suit. Shh. I won't touch anything this time, Jerry. I'll, I'll just stoop down and see if I can see through the keyhole. See anything? Yes. He's in there. Young Middleton? Uh-huh. What's he doing? Sewing. Sewing? Yes. What's the idea? I lost my balance. Hey! Oh, I'm sorry. I lost my balance. I fell against the door and I'm terribly sorry. I didn't mean to... I mean, I didn't mean... I fell. Doggone it. I told you to keep away from here. Oh, Mr. North, too. And the lieutenant. What do you want? I wanted to be able to live with my wife. Huh? Yes, she just had to see what you have in here. Well, now you see. I hope you're satisfied. Dolls? Yes, I make them. Silly, isn't it? I don't think so. I just like to make dolls. Sort of a hobby. There's no law against it, is there? Uh, no, no, not that I've heard. I know. I ought to fool around with shortwave radio or, or electric motors or something. But I'd rather make dolls. Well, what are you waiting for? Why don't you laugh? I don't feel like it. Uh, look, uh, son... Is this where you were the night of the murder? 
Yes. That's why I confessed. So you'd all stop asking questions about where I was. I didn't want to have to tell about it. I, I was safe enough. Two confessions before mine, and I could always tell the truth if I had to. But I hoped I wouldn't have to. Oh, you shouldn't feel so ashamed, David. These dolls are beautiful. Why, you're an artist. Look, Jerry, all kinds of characters. Yeah, they're absolutely perfect. Look, every little detail exact. Some of these dolls are so tiny, and others are almost life-size. Thanks, Mrs. North. You can have one if you like. Oh, thank you, I would. Uh, this one, this little old man with a pipe. Okay, he's yours. Oh, thank you, David. Jerry, look, isn't he cute? Little wrinkled-up face. Jerry. Hmm? Dolls. What about them? They give me an idea. I think I know how we can catch the murderer. With dolls? Yes, Jerry. With dolls. You see, Miss Middleton, there was quite a scheme. By pretending to shield you... Warwick could throw suspicion off himself. The very confession of murder would suggest he was innocent. And then being found tied up right after we were shot at. It would again make him seem innocent of that, too. And the gun plant would throw the blame where he wanted it. Clever. It's too clever. Anybody who'd work out such an elaborate scheme wouldn't make such stupid mistakes as the date on the paper and the locked door. Besides, he's a slitherer. A what? Uh, a slitherer. There are two kinds of liars. Twisters and slitherers. Twisters figure out three or four twists ahead and lie accordingly, while slitherers just slide into whatever lie seems to fit at the moment. Mr. Warwick is a slitherer. But how do you know? At the jail, Mr. Chapman was always way ahead of Mr. Warwick. He confessed first, and he lied much better. He's a twister. It was he who confessed to throw suspicion off himself. Warwick simply confessed out of jealousy at Chapman's getting all your gratitude. Only a twister would have thought of that first confession. And get this twist. Instead of framing a case against Warwick, he lets Warwick frame a case against him. A case that will fold up and make Warwick seem guilty. You you mean Larry is the murderer? Well, sure. But, but then why did George run away? He saw so much evidence piling up against him, he was afraid we'd be able to pin the murder on him. Chapman's scheme was working. And it was an elaborate scheme, too. Chapman planted the gun in today's paper and put it in the bushes. And after tying up Warwick, he walked to the door, slammed it, and then quietly locked it. Slipped to the window and got out that way. Warwick on the floor behind the bed couldn't see him. I can't believe it. Why? Why would he do all this? Kill father and, and then try to put the blame on George. Simple. With your father's death, you and your brother share the inheritance. And by framing Warwick, Chapman hoped to eliminate him and marry you for your money. Oh, I can't believe it. I can't. Unfortunately, it's true. We haven't told Bill yet. But as soon as he gets here, we're going to tell him... You're that not going to do anything. I'm shutting you up now. All right, Chapman, drop that pistol. I've got you covered. That's it. Okay, folks, you can come out from behind the sofa. Helen! And Mr. and Mrs. North. Yeah, what you shot were just dummies. Life-size dolls, which you probably can see yourself now that you take the time. Mr. and Mrs. Proxy. Oh, poor Mrs. Proxy. You hit her right between the eyes. Helen, you... You were in on this. You invited me here, left the front door open so I'd come in and overhear yes, you. Yes, Larry. She didn't want to. But when we convinced her that you'd killed her father, she agreed. Well, you can come along with me, Chapman. We didn't have any proof against you before, but we have now. Thanks to Mr. and Mrs. Proxy. Golly, Jerry. Y you know something? 
What? We're not such bad twisters ourselves, are we? a film star has an easy life? Well, she doesn't. Making a picture is unusually hard work. She has to be up at dawn to have her makeup on and be ready in time. She works all day under blazing lights. Then there are personal appearances, for every star is busy with war work these days. And off the set as well as on, she has to look glamorous. Well, the beauty care that can keep her skin soft and radiant through all that has to be remarkably effective. And here's what Veronica Lake does. The Paramount star now appearing in So Proudly We Hail. She told us... I take the three-minute Woodbury Beauty Nightcap every night with Woodbury Cold Cream. The beauty results are thrilling. Well, girls, your skin may not have such hard treatment as a film star's, but if Woodbury Cold Cream can do so much for them, think what it can do for you. That's because Woodbury is much more than just cold cream. It's a complete beauty cream. Jars, ten cents to a dollar and a quarter. That's Woodbury, W-O-O-D-B-U-R-Y, Woodbury Cold Cream. Get a jar tonight. Tune in again next Wednesday evening at the same time for another adventure of Mr. and Mrs. North. For thrills and laughs, be sure to listen, won't you? This is Ben Grower saying good night for Woodbury, 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 for the skin you love to touch. This is the National Broadcasting Company.